stand together as we begin our worship. We come from scattered lives to meet with God. Let's recognise his presence with us. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather together today and sing your praises. We do worship your holy name and praise you for your goodness to us. We have so much to thank you for. We pray that as we continue in our worship, you will be evident amongst us, meeting us where we are, moving amongst us by your spirit, comforting, strengthening, encouraging, calling. Have your way among us and be glorified this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. We're going to invite Elsie and Adrian to the front now and we're going to hear from them about uh, the home groups that we have here at Christchurch. Quite a lot of you here are already members of home groups, and, but also there's quite a few of you here who aren't. And you may have seen something in the church update recently about us encouraging people to join home groups if you're not already a member. But if you're not a member, you might think, what on earth goes on at house groups? So we asked Adrian, who joined the house group relatively recently, if he'd be willing to answer some questions about home groups. Here we go. Adrian, how long have you been going to a house group? Well, I look back on the emails, and uh, it was 2019, so just over two years ago. Right, but you've been coming to Christchurch quite a lot longer than that, so what made you join then? I guess there might have been a fear of missing out. Um, There's lots of positive talk about home groups, but more seriously, um, you know, back in the early 80s, in another parish in Witchell Park Grove in Kings Norton, I was part of a weekly Bible study, and actually... When I first came to Christchurch, I did join a home group, but um, I can't remember for that why I lapsed from that. I think it was probably pressure of work at the time. So I'm used to home groups, I suppose, is what I'm saying. So I know things have been rather different recently due to COVID, but what sort of thing going on in a house group for a home group? Yeah. Firstly, I think from our perspective as a group, because we have talked about this, we found Zoom and the ability to do home group across the internet has been absolutely fantastic. So we've really enjoyed carrying on meeting, but not meeting, um, throughout the pandemic. But what goes on? Well, for us, there's a bit of catch-up, a chat at the beginning. Isn't that usual? Um, we st- not necessarily in this order always. Um, we certainly spend time talking about um, prayer requests that we may individually have and want the rest of the group to share in, to, to pray over in that week. And we certainly do um, put some time in for a Bible study of one sort or another and for prayer. But those slots vary enormously from one week to another um, and the order in which they happen. So what's the best thing about house group for you? I think that one of the best times was when we as a church on our Sundays were following the um, sermon series of the Good and Beautiful God if I've said that right. Yeah, I found that those weeks where you'd got the book and you could, could follow through on the soul survivor bits or whatever they were called, those were really good. So I think those were good. And I think it's sharing experiences and getting to know that smaller group. I think we're a very friendly, large group, but actually in the small group, you do get to know people better. So that is a positive. 
Anything that's a bit negative or you found hard? That's a really difficult one to answer. <laughs> but, but what I did put in, and looking at two of my home groups sitting in front of me, I think the bits I don't like is when um, I get to the end of a session that I've been leading and think, that wasn't that great. <laughs> so, has going to a home group made any difference to your faith journey, or has it answered the reasons you went, you decided to go to one? Um, I think that any chance to have a time set aside in the week um, when, when you can study and pray is a good one because if you're like me you're not very well disciplined so uh, I find the positive of having that slot to remind oneself and to come back to what we might have heard the week before so those are, that's the positive I would say as well as the good company and some people might think oh I'm a bit shy they're put on the spot, will I feel I've got to say something or I feel I've got to pray? I don't want to do that. Has that ever happened to you? You felt pressurised? I thought you were going to say, did I ever feel shy? <laughs> <laughs> Always. <laughs> Play to the audience. I didn't get learned that somewhere. Sorry, go back to the serious question. Pressurised, not at all. You know, I don't feel as though this, we in this church family are into pressurising people at all. I hope we're not, I don't ever feel it, and I don't feel it in, in, in a small group either. It might sound a bit serious that you pray for something like that. Do you ever laugh and have fun? Yeah, we do. I think we're not alone in, as a home group that we, uh, we have socials. We've met a few times over this uh, spring and summer in the garden at uh, Graham and Janet's, for example. We've certainly shared food together. So yeah, no, we, we do we do socialise as well as praying and being serious. So I think to me that all sounds pretty positive. Thank you, Adrian. I have no idea what you're going to say, but I'm positive. <laughs> so obvious question, really. Otherwise, I wouldn't be standing here. Would you encourage others to become part of Home Group if they're not? Yeah, speak to Elsie. That's what I did. Um, I mean, from a, from a Home Group point of view, I think building a closer relationship with a small group is really good. Yeah, as I said before, it's good to meet midweek and reflect on. Yes, I agree with everything Adrian said. You know, it could be applied to our group, and I'm sure it could be applied to most of the group around here, nearly everything he said. So, if you think this is a good time for me to start a new term, a new, new topic starting soon, a new vicar, I think it'd be a great start a new home group. So, do get in touch with me if you'd like to. Thank you. This morning's reading is from Luke chapter 16. It's a parable of the shrewd manager. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So the rich man called him in and asked him, what is this that I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 
3,000 litres of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 1,500. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? 30 tonnes of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 24. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted he acted, he acted shrewdly. Thank you. For the people of this world are more shrewd dealing with their own kind than other people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whatever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with somebody else's property, who will give you property of your own? This is the word of the Lord. Great, thank you John. I'm a bit nervous, my pages might be stuck together now. It's going to be a very short sermon if it is. It's an unusual parable, isn't it? It's one of the strangest ones that we read about in the New Testament. Now, Paula Gooder, in her book on parables, writes this. She says, this has to be one of the trickiest and hardest to understand of all the parables. But maybe I am an appropriate person to speak on this parable. The, the Greek word that's used for manager is the word from which we get our word economist. And as some of you know, I am an economist. At least that's what I tell my students. So, so maybe I, I can speak on this passage. I think the difficulty that some people have with this parable is that Jesus seems to commend dishonesty, doesn't he? The manager behaves dishonestly, and Jesus commends him. And I think some commentators have struggled with that, and probably rightly so. And they've tried to argue that maybe what the manager did wasn't that bad after all. Personally, I'm not convinced by that, and we'll look at that a bit later. I think he was dishonest, but nonetheless there were things that we can commend him for. Jesus told this parable to his disciples, but were also told later on that the Pharisees, as was their custom, were listening in, trying to find out what Jesus was saying. I think both of those audiences are quite important. He's speaking to the disciples, but Jesus knows that the Pharisees are also listening in. This is a story for us, it is a story for believers, but I think there's also a message there for unbelievers. So let's look at the parable itself. I think it's simple enough, on the surface at least. There's a rich man, but he's not going to be rich for very long because his financial advisor is swindling him. He's wasting the master's resources. The rich man finds out about this and naturally calls the manager in to give an account. The dishonest manager 
seems to readily accept his guilt, but we're certainly not told that he argues with the manager and says, no, none of this is true. It looks like there's nothing that he can say or do to refute the challenges that the allegations made against him. Because he's got nothing to say, he remains silent. The outcome is inevitable. The manager is sacked, told to clear his desk, and hand in the account books as soon as possible. Now I think the rich man is totally within his rights to do this. If anything, the rich man is being lenient, I think. He could have said, you know, you've swindled me out of vast sums of money, you've got to pay back everything you owe. Or he could have just called in the police, have him arrested and thrown in prison. But it doesn't do either of those things. But nonetheless, the manager is facing imminent disaster. His income, his home, his career, his status were all about to come to a sudden end. And there's no redundancy payment, and the welfare state hasn't yet been invented. He is facing imminent disaster. But fortunately, there's a narrow window of opportunity before he has to hand over the account books to his master. If he acts quickly enough, if he acts shrewdly enough, then he might be able to find a way out, he might be able to avoid complete disaster. He knows that he's been found out and that Judgment Day is just around the corner. So he quickly goes through his various options. What could I do? His reputation is shot. There's no way he's going to be employed as another manager. He's not going to be a financial advisor anymore. He could get a manual job. That's a possibility. But he knows that's not really for him. He's enjoyed the good life far too long. Uh, and so he's too weak to dig. He could beg on the streets. That's an option. But again, he knows that's not really for him. He's a person who other people have looked up to. And he's too proud to beg. It looks like his options are running out fairly quickly. But then the way I read the parable, the manager says to himself, there's one thing that I can do, there's one thing that I am good at. I'm good at dodgy financial dealings. I'll do one more, or maybe two more of those, to see if I can try to put things right. And that's what he does. He takes all the master's paperwork out of the filing cabinet, if they had filing cabinets, and he takes them along to the clients, and he gets them to reduce their debts by 20 to 50%, a huge amounts that they're reduced by. I don't think he's doing it out of the kindness of his heart. He does it so that his clients will hopefully appreciate what he's done and see it right when, things, when, when it really matters. When he's out of a job, he hopes they're going to remember him and welcome him into their homes. Now this is where some commentators think that what the manager was doing wasn't actually that dishonest. Some of them think he's actually putting right his previous financial misdeeds, or possibly he's actually taking off his commission, and therefore he's putting things right. Both are possibilities, I'm not going to argue with the commentators, but personally I'm not convinced. I think the amounts are just too huge, they're too big. And interestingly, did you notice that the, man the manager doesn't actually change the books themselves? He hands them over to the clients, and he gets the clients to write quickly what the new amount is. I'm not normally suspicious, but that makes me suspicious. 
I think that he's making sure that none of this is in his own handwriting. When the serious fraud office come along, it's someone else's handwriting. I haven't done this. I'm a little bit suspicious. I think he's still up to his old tricks. This is his last throw of the dice to make things right for his future. And if I'm right, then the twist at the end of the parable is even more uh, acute. The rich man finds out again what the manager has done. Surely now the rich man is going to be outraged. I've given you some leniency, I've shown you some leniency, and this is what you've done. Surely now the time of leniency is over. Surely now he's going to call the police and have his manager thrown into prison. But that's not what he does. The twist in the story is that the manager commends, sorry, the rich man commends the dishonest manager. I wonder how you feel about that. If you think about the story, how do you feel? Do you feel maybe outraged that this crook has got away with it? Maybe this crook is actually being commended for being acting dishonestly. He doesn't deserve to be commended. He deserves to be thrown in prison, surely. Maybe that's your reaction. But I suspect many of us at least have some grudging admiration for the dishonest manager. Yes, he was dishonest, and yes, he abuses his, his master's trust. But you have to admire his audacity, you have to admire his shrewdness to some extent. There are a number of positive things about the dishonest manager. To his credit, he doesn't deny the guilt when the allegations are put to him. He doesn't say his treatment is unfair. He's smart enough to quickly understand the predicament he's in, and he realises he needs to do something really quickly to secure his future. And he's got a good understanding of his own abilities and options, and he quickly evaluates what he can and cannot do. And then finally, he acts intentionally, he acts decisively to secure his future. What's not to like? Well, apart from his dishonesty. <laughs> Apart from that, you have to hand it to him, don't you? Both his boss in the parable and Jesus after the parable commend his shrewdness for the way he acted. So the question is, what does all this mean for us? It doesn't mean that you can act dishonestly as long as you're shrewd about it. That's not the right interpretation. What does it mean to us? Well, fortunately, Jesus gives two interpretations at the end. He gives two applications. There's a general application, and then there's a more specific application. I thought it would be good to look at both of those. So the first general application is that God wants us to be shrewd. So shrewdness, it might surprise you, is a desirable Christian quality. The shrewd manager knew that his judgment day was fast approaching. So he put all of his energies into securing life after the sack. He wanted to make sure that he had a place to go in the future. He wanted a place where he would be welcomed once he'd lost his position. He shows a clear-headedness, doesn't he, about securing his future. And we are to imitate that. In Matthew 10, 16, Jesus tells his disciples, Be as shrewd as snakes, and as innocent as doves. The word shrewd is the same as in our parable. We're to be both shrewd and innocent. 
In my preparation for the sermon, I obviously had to look up the meaning of the word shrewd, and this is what it said. A shrewd is having or showing sharp powers of judgment, astute. A shrewd person is able to understand and judge a situation quickly, and to use this understanding to their own advantage. It's clear that the dishonest manager acted shrewdly according to this definition. He understood the new situation, he evaluated his options quickly, and he used that understanding to his own advantage. When Jesus told this parable, I think he's challenging both his disciples, but he's also challenging the Pharisees who are listening in. I think particularly the Pharisees would have understood this. I'm pretty sure the Pharisees thought that they were shrewd. They understood the story. They knew who Jesus was. It's just someone from Nazareth and a few people following him. He's not to be worshipped. They thought they understood what was going on, but they didn't have a clue. They were mistaken. With the coming of Jesus, the history of the world had radically changed. God's kingdom is now breaking into history in a completely new way. And the Pharisees missed it. With the coming of Jesus, God's grace and mercy have been fully revealed in this world. But God's judgment has also been revealed. The way Jesus lived was a judgment on us. The way Jesus died and was risen from the dead was a judgment on each of us. The Pharisees listened into the parable about shrewdness and securing your future, and they missed the point. All they could do was scoff. They didn't understand that in Jesus God was doing something radically new. Jesus lets the Pharisees listen in. He doesn't take the disciples away somewhere quiet. He wants them to hear this parable. He wants them to act shrewdly. He wants them to understand what reality now really looks like and to respond appropriately. Grace, mercy and judgment have all come in Jesus and he wants them to understand. He wants us to understand as well. There's a small window of opportunity to respond. Because of God's leniency, there is a way out. The cross provides hope for each one of us. But only if we act shrewdly. God has paid the price necessary for our salvation, but we do need to accept that gift. If we don't act in our own self-interest, I'm afraid the future is bleak indeed. But if we do act in our own self-interest, we have a fantastic future ahead of us. We will be welcomed into God's house, and our future will be secure. Unfortunately, the Pharisees and many people today fail to recognise that reality has changed with the coming of Jesus. I just hope it's not a tragedy that any of us make here. We do need to understand what reality looks like and to respond appropriately. I think that's the first general application of this parable. But then Jesus goes on to make a more specific application. And I suspect this was probably more directly aimed at his disciples. And the specific application is that God wants us to be shrewd in the way we use our money. After he's told the parable, Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you, use worldly wealth 
together with friends for yourselves. That doesn't sound great, does it? By friends. It's not a great thing to say often. My, my sons used to tease me if I was going out with a friend, they'd say, this is going to cost you a lot because you're going to have to pay them, aren't you? Kids, kids can be so cruel. <laughs> I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Use your money to buy friends here. I think if we read the rest of the verse, it becomes clearer. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Jesus has a particular kind of friendship here, doesn't he? And he's the master storyteller. He uses an unjust judge to talk about God. And it's an argument from lesser to greater. And I think it's the same in our parable today. It's an argument from lesser to greater. If this dishonest manager can use his wealth to gain friends, how much more should we as children of light use our wealth to secure friends not necessarily here, but in the future. Jesus is saying we can't take our money with us when we die. He talks about when it's gone. But there is a real connection between eternity and time. There's a real connection between what we do with our money now and what eternity will look like. And Jesus says we're to invest our money and possessions today to enrich our future. Wanda, do you, want to, do you want to know what shrewdness really looks like? What is shrewd? Shrewd is not knowing which way the stock market is going to go in the next few months. Shrewdness is not knowing what the new business opportunities are after COVID. True shrewdness is knowing how to use your money today to affect eternity. That is what is really shrewd. You have an eternal investment, an eternal inheritance. We're to use our wealth to make friends who will welcome us into glory. Now I find that such an attractive thought. Using our wealth today to make friends who will welcome us into glory. It's possible that someone in heaven may come up to us and say, I'm here because in 2021 you gave to Tearfund. Or I'm here because you gave to Christchurch and they did some work in Sunny Park and that really benefited me. I want to thank you so much. You didn't know at the time, but I want to thank you so much. How amazing that will be. I think that's what Jesus is talking about in another passage in Matthew 6, 19, when he says, store up treasures in heaven. And we can do that by investing in what God is doing in this world. God wants us to be really, really shrewd investors. Not investors in things that will wear out and disappear, but things that will last forever. He wants us to put our money where we get an eternal return. And as an economist, I know that makes sense. That's the shrewd thing to do. I said our money. Of course, it's not our money. It's God's money. We're just like the shrewd manager. We're looking after somebody else's money. And it's God's. And I think, just like the shrewd manager was held to account, we'll also be held to account. I think one day we'll be asked... How did you, what did you do with my resources? Did you invest wisely? And I hope again each one of us can say yes. We invested in eternity for your glory. I don't think this parable is too difficult to understand personally, despite all the commentators. The shrewd manager understood reality and he took decisive action to secure his future. We're to do the same. God offers us 
a fantastic future. But it depends on what we do today. We could ignore reality and deceive ourselves and think I'll be alright on the Day of Judgment. For we can accept his forgiveness that he offers and come to him in faith and repentance. And our future will be secure. We could use his money and his resources for our own pleasure, putting ourselves first. Or we could use it to invest in people and to invest in eternity. Surely the power is obvious. We have to make shrewd choices. But the choice is ours to make. One of the uh, things that Graham spoke about was God wanting us to be shrewd in the way we use our money, recognising that what we have comes from God, our provider. It belongs to God, and using it to serve others and build God's kingdom, investing in eternity. We thought it would be good to say the offertory prayer together, even though we're not taking up an offertory or a collection this morning. The words fit well, not just about our money, but also about our time, our gifts, our lives. But let's say together this prayer. We say together, Yours, Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the splendor and the majesty, for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. All things come from you and of your own to in Jesus' powerful name, we go into the world to walk in God's light, to rejoice in God's love, and to reflect God's glory. Amen. Amen.